Okay. So we're up to the 24th chapter in the story as we go through this chronological um, kind of a passage through the, the narratives in the, in the scriptures. And the title they given to this week is No Ordinary Man. And they went through this particular chapter has so many of the parables and teachings of Jesus that are so popular we could spend a month going through them. Um, but luckily it's only going to be two weeks. So I hope you packed a lunch and a dinner and um, we'll get started. But I want to take a few minutes first to read a couple quotes from people who talked about the impact of Jesus and how he was extraordinary and how he was different. First, uh, D. James Kennedy wrote this in a little passage called One Solitary Life. He said he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen-plus centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Napoleon Bonaparte, not one we normally think of or quote during when we're talking about the scriptures, but Napoleon studied a lot of great leaders did, studied other great leaders and studied men. And here's what he said about Christ. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His ideas and sentiments, the truth which he announces, his manner of convincing are not explained either by human organization or by the nature of things. The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine, everything is above me. Everything remains grand, of a grandeur which overpowers. His religion is a revelation from an intelligence which certainly is not that of a man." One can absolutely find nowhere but in him alone the imitation or the example of his life. I search in vain in history to find one similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me, with, offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here everything is extraordinary. And then finally James Stewart, a Scottish minister, wrote this. He said, he was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him, and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half as kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words against sin. A bruised reed he would not break. 
His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the money changers and hucksters fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fires they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself, he would not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. These things are written by men looking back over almost 2,000 years in the context of seeing what had actually, they saw not the end of the story, but a lot of what happened after that. See, Jesus didn't die in this fade off into ignominy. He became a, a central figure, as, as D. James Kennedy wrote, in all of human history. The church was established and has been a tremendous force through history with all of its flaws, all the things that we bring to it. The church that he established to bring the word to the world has, has survived. And they're writing looking back at that, and they can see that he wasn't ordinary. But this morning we take a few minutes and look at the people that were around Jesus, the people that saw him firsthand and walked with him, and what did they think of him? How did they see him? Did they recognize how extraordinary he was? And how did that show itself? We know that certain people, like the Pharisees, were irritated by him. He got in the way of what they, what they were doing. He got in the way of their, kind of the rubric through which they viewed the world. He, he kind of messed that up, and they didn't like that. But let's look to some other people. His parents, first of all. In Luke chapter 2, it tells us about a couple of different things. After all the things that Mary and Joseph have heard from angels, the, the, the angel coming and visiting Mary, God coming and speaking to Joseph and telling him to go ahead, all those things still... When the shepherds came and they were in the stable and the shepherds told them what they'd seen in the fields and what they'd been told, it says that Mary treasured these things up and means they gathered, held them close and she pondered them. What could this mean? She was, she was amazed. When they went through the temple on, on the eighth day when Jesus was circumcised and they saw Simeon and Anna and heard the prophecies and heard the things that they said, it, scriptures tell us that the father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They continued to be impressed and amazed. They knew there was something about Jesus that was different. Later on, as he starts his ministry, the Pharisees and the priests sent temple, temple officers, temple police, as it were, to go and arrest him. These were not keystone cops. These were pretty tough guys. They were Levites. It was their job to guard the temple and make sure nobody went where they weren't supposed to go. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't come in beyond the, gent the court that was allocated for Gentiles. And even if you were a Jew, you couldn't come in certain places. And if you tried to, they would kill you. That was their job. These were no goofballs. And they went to see Jesus. They went for the purpose of arresting him, and they came back without him. And it doesn't tell us they even tried to arrest him. They just came back. And the Pharisees, when they get there, said, why didn't you bring him? And here's what they say. No explanation. No, well, he didn't think it was the right time, or the crowd seemed kind of, it seemed like it might be a problem. They just said this. No one ever spoke like this man. They were stunned. There was something different about the message that Jesus was bringing, the way he was teaching, and they couldn't do what they were sent to do. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in Sychar, who goes after Jesus had a short conversation and goes into the village where she was a moral outcast, a social outcast, and said, come see the man that told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Could this be the one we've been waiting for? And then finally, the disciples. The disciples were not guys who fished once in a while out of a creek leading into Lake Ontario. These guys were professional fishermen. And fishing then 
was a pretty dangerous thing. The Sea of Galilee sits, I think it's like six or 700 feet below sea level. And because of where it sits, it's prone to these sudden squalls and violent storms. And these guys were used to those storms. And now they're in the boat. And one comes up so bad that they're sure they're going to die. And they look in the back of the boat, and Jesus is asleep. You ever try to sleep on a boat in choppy water? It's, it's not even fun to be awake, right? You wish you could be asleep. He's asleep in a violent storm. And that's not normal. And they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're going to die? And he wakes up and he gets up and he says to the wind, and he says, peace, be still. It says he rebukes the wind. He scolds it. And then it says, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Not just a little bit calmer, but there was a great calm instantly. And now he turns to the disciples and says, why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? With the things you've already seen, do you still not get it? And now it says they were filled with fear. Now they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of him. And they've already been with him, and still they're, they're, they're stunned. And they say, who is this then? Who can this be who even is obeyed by the wind and the sea? Even the wind and sea obey him. Who can this be? A couple chapters later, after some hard teaching, John tells us that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter gives one of these answers that only Peter could give. Just a great answer. Peter gets criticized for not thinking a lot, but sometimes that's a great way to go. And he just says exactly no, no nuance here. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he says this, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Just two chapters later, and now they got it. They don't totally understand everything. We're going to see as you go through the Gospels, you see that they, they didn't get everything yet, of course. But now they begin to understand this isn't just a good rabbi or a good teacher or an interesting guy. This is God himself. And their world's being turned upside down. So I'm going to talk about a few ways in which Jesus was unique. How was he different? And, and you could think of many, many different ways, and some of them are offshoots of these, but I, I just named four, and we'll go through them quickly, and then we're going to go through one of the more famous parables or stories Jesus told, and we're going to see how these things come out. But first of all was his description of our problem. Jesus doesn't bother, although he healed the sick, he met a lot of physical needs, he met a lot of issues, he never failed to remind us that the real problem was not our situation, but it was our sin. It's our sinfulness. It wasn't Roman taxes. It was our commitment to him. No matter what he does, he constantly focuses on the sin as being the issue. He doesn't compromise that. When, the, when the, the Jews sent people to trap him in a politically difficult question, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? On the one hand of the Romans, if you are out advocating not paying taxes to Caesar, that's treason, you'd be arrested and killed. The Romans didn't have a lot of different uh, penalties for crimes. If you committed a crime, generally, you were killed. It was pretty simple. The lawyers didn't have to train a whole long, a lot of time. It was pretty easy. And that's how it would go. But if he said you should pay taxes... His popularity with the people, which they resented so much, would begin to be chipped away at. The people didn't want to hear that we should pay taxes to Caesar because Caesar was oppressing the Jewish nation, and they're looking for a Messiah to deliver them. Why would he say pay taxes? And Jesus turns the whole thing around, right? And he says, whose inscription is on the coin? And they say Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. And it's been said that the follow-up question should have obviously been, what belongs to God? And Jesus' answer, I think, would have been, Whose image is on you? You give yourself to God. You know, I, 
I've said this speaking before, and it may offend some people, and it may not, and I don't know, and if it does, well, I'm sorry, but it it's, is what it is. If you want to know where your priorities are, despite all the things we tell ourselves, right, we tell ourselves all the time what is important to us, look where you spend your time and your money. Just, just take five minutes honestly and look at where you put your priorities. That's where your heart is. That's where your priorities are. And Jesus says the problem that we have is our sin first. The other problems are secondary. Sin is the first problem. The second way he's unique after he describes the problem is his solution to the problem. What do other moral teachers do? They offer wisdom. They offer interesting sayings, ideas. The Jewish teachers offered to follow the law, do this, do that. Jesus offered something different. He said, I am the way. He's the only teacher, the only who offered himself as the answer. And this infuriated the Pharisees, right? Because they recognized the only one who can say that is God. And Jesus was claiming to be God, and they couldn't handle this. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis is describing his conversion in his book, <clears throat> excuse me, just surprised by joy. And C.S. Lewis had a long journey to Christ. He didn't want to become a Christian. And so he fought it and fought it and searched and, and researched other religions and other things. And finally, this is what he says. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and in the Trinity term of 1929 I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept the convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore, duly appreciate that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compelle and trare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation." And then that ends that chapter in the book. In the start of the next chapter, he just simply says this. I thought I had come to a place, but I found out that I had come to a person. Jesus offers himself as the answer to the problem of sin. So he's unique in the, in the way he describes the problem. He's unique in the, in the solution he offers. The third way is his heavenly perspective. Jesus did not make the mistake as a man. Jesus was fully man and fully God, but he did not focus on the 60, 70, or 80 years here. He understood that all of this is only valuable and only important in the context of eternity. And he continually challenges us to do that. In Matthew chapter 6, we have these scriptures for you. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A few verses later, he continues. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Insert your favorite joke about your wife's excessive wardrobe here. 
Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I'm going to need a heavenly perspective in about 45 minutes because I won't have any earthly one left. Um, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's important to note when he says all these things will be added, he's not saying that if you seek the kingdom of God first, you will have riches and wealth and all these things. He's saying you'll have what you need. Don't worry about what you need. I know what you need, and I'll provide. You know, it's very difficult for us to have a heavenly perspective when we live on earth. Um, Ravi Zacharias made a comment one time that he said, do you ever think of what you would do to scare Lazarus? How would you frighten him? You starting to kill him? He'd already been dead. He, know, he knew. There's a play written by Eugene O'Neill called Lazarus Laughed. And in the play, it's historical fiction, but in the play, Caligula is going around threatening and torturing and killing Christians, and he encounters Lazarus. And as he begins to threaten, Lazarus just laughs. And Caligula is furious, and he threatens more, and, he, and, and Lazarus laughs some more. And he says, one more laugh, and I'm going to kill He's threatening. He's, he cannot stand it. He's apoplectic. And Lazarus, just now he's doubled over. He can't help himself. He's laughing so hard. And finally, he contains himself, and he says, Caligula, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death is dead. Paul says in Romans 15, he goes, death, where's your victory? Grave, where's your sting? It's gone. Because we had a heavenly perspective. So Jesus is unique in the way he describes our problem. He's unique in the solution he offers. He's unique in his heavenly perspective. And then finally, he's unique in his inclusiveness. All were welcome. This infuriated, confounded the frustrate, and frustrated the Pharisees and the other religious leaders because he would not confine his ministry and his mercy and his love and his sociability to those whom they approved of. See, Pharisees weren't monks or hermits. There were those who separated themselves from the population and would not have any human contact because they wanted to stay holy. The Pharisees didn't believe in that. They started out as a righteous sect really trying to teach the law to the people. But over time, their, their regulations and their rules and laws kind of became encrusted around them. And now here they are at the time of Christ, positively an impediment to the message. And they couldn't understand what he was talking about and why he would spend this time, and it drove them crazy. But Jesus consistently reached out to those you wouldn't expect him to reach out to. The woman with the issue of blood, who reached out and touched his garment. That would have been horrific to a Pharisee who then would have been ceremonially unclean for that day and would have had to go through all kinds of rituals. It would have been at least an inconvenience. How dare you touch me? But Jesus understood that her touch couldn't make him unclean. Her touch had impact on her, not on him. In Acts chapter 11, there's another case, and this is, This is kind of interesting. I had read this just recently, and it just hit me for the first time. But Peter has come back from ministering to Cornelius and the Gentiles and witnessing the Gentiles accepting salvation and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And Peter himself is stunned. And now there's some criticism back in Jerusalem among the early church. The church was a Jewish movement up to that point. Jesus was the Messiah. And they did not yet understand the inclusiveness and that the Gentiles were included. And Peter says it. 
He tells the whole story and then he says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. It was just quiet. They were amazed. And this is what they said. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And they glorified God. They, now they got it. Now they understood. But even to the Gentiles, this was completely foreign to a Jewish mind. But even the Gentiles, who were the definition of what was unclean, now the salvation they realized was for all mankind. It was for everybody. And everyone was included. Now it's important to note here that Christ's inclusiveness did not include compromising. He never compromised the message of sin. When we talk about inclusiveness today, either in the culture or in the church, sad to say, in a lot of places, we talk about changing standards and finding ways to go back and reevaluate standards in order to make them more palatable to the culture. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus never changed and never compromised on his description. The problem is sin. When he met the woman at the well, he didn't tell her, well, you've had five husbands, but you know number three was kind of a jerk. And number two, you know, he didn't make any excuses. He didn't say, well, as long as you love the one you're with now. I know he's not your husband, but as long as you're in love with him, that's okay. He made no compromise, no excuse, but he loved her. And he provided reconciliation and hope for her. Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He raises us up to it. In Luke 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're irritated by this. See, they couldn't understand this, the socializing with sinners. And that's because their understanding of God and his forgiveness was limited by their understanding of forgiveness in general. Forgiveness, they viewed it as purely transactional. For example, if I sin, if I steal your car, I take your car today out of the parking lot, and you go out and it's gone. And you know it's me. And I come back next week and I tell you, I'm sorry, I took your car, and you forgive me. That's it, right? No, you want the car back. You expect me to do something to make up for what I've done. You expect some restitution. If I wrecked the car, what do you expect me to do? Pay for it, right? Get you a new one. Do whatever I can. And maybe, maybe if I don't have enough, you'll have some mercy and we'll work something out and something will happen. But that would be incredibly generous on your part. The Pharisees only understood forgiveness is begged for, it's given, heavy conditions are placed, and restitution has to be made. And they could not understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. That's why they couldn't understand this. So it says next that, so he told them this parable, and actually it's three parables. But he starts out with these first two. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, why in the world would a shepherd leave 99 sheep out in the field, not in the sheepfold, 
Not in the city, but out in the open country, it says. And go look for one. I mean, if you have 99 sheep, you're going to have 100 pretty soon, right? I mean, they're not rabbits, but they're sheep. You're going to have more. So it's not because, oh, no, I need 100. It's not the number. He goes because he cares about the one. He cares about that individual. It doesn't matter at that point if he has 99 or 99,000. He goes after the one. And he takes all of the burden of the effort. He goes out into, and looks for the sheep. Maybe it wasn't safe. Remember what David encountered, he told us, when he was a shepherd as a boy? A lion, a bear, other wild animals. He goes out and he finds the sheep. And then what does he do? Do you notice the sheep doesn't walk with him back? He picks up the sheep, who presumably now is tired. Sheep, when they get lost, they just sit and they bleat. And they make this horrific noise. You've probably all heard it. And, and, he makes the no- and they just keep doing it. And the sheep is, is scared. It's trembling. Presumably too weak to walk. And the shepherd picks it up and puts it on his shoulders. And now he carries the sheep back. This is a sheep. They're not little. I, mean, I don't know what every sheep weighs, but they're pretty big. And he puts it on his shoulders, and he, carry, he bears the burden of bringing it back and restoring it. That's what he does. And the woman with the coin, you notice she lights a lamp. She doesn't wait till morning. She starts right now. She lights the lamp, and she searches diligently, frantically, to find this coin. And you'll notice the coin does nothing to be found. Coins are terrible that way. It just lays there where it was. My mother used to tell me when I couldn't find something, well, it's right where you left it. Thanks, Mom. You know, it's a great advice from your parents. My dad's favorite was, Russ, don't be stupid. Okay? So what it lacked in specificity, it made up for in clarity, right? (laughs) But the coin does nothing. The woman does all the work. And she goes and finds that coin. And when she finds it, she rejoices. So Jesus is now trying to get the message across. He's trying to tell the Pharisees, this is why I love them so much. This is why I socialize with them. Don't you see? This is how it should be. And then he goes on to tell a little bit more of a detailed story. It's a little more close to home. In verse 11, it says, And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This was a shock. This would have shocked the Jewish ear of that time, the Middle Eastern ear of that time, to hear it. This guy, this kid just basically said, I wish you were dead. I don't want to wait. I want my inheritance now. You're not, my real, I don't care about you. I don't care about my relationship with you. I just want what's coming to me. I want my money. Now, even today, in a culture that tolerates and almost celebrates sometimes um, clear-spoken children, shall we say? Right? Um, This is even shocking to us. But to them, it would have been unheard of. And here we see something right at the beginning. The father's mercy that we're going to see more of a little later on, it's already extended because this child is not beaten and disciplined, which is what would have been expected. That's what should have happened, and he doesn't do it. What does he do? He grants his request. Now, the way this would have worked is there were two sons. So the estate, all that he had, it wasn't cash in the bank. It wasn't stocks and bonds. It was property, animals, whatever they, they owned. He would have divided into three portions. The older son got a double portion. So that's how it worked. The older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get a third. If there were five children, you would divide it six ways. And the oldest, would, or five sons, I should say. 
and the, and the oldest would get two portions, and the rest would get the remaining. But he divides it, and he gives the son who asked what he, what he asked for. There's one other thing to notice here. The oldest brother, at least as far as Jesus tells us, says nothing. Part of his role as the oldest brother would have been to intervene in this dispute. He should have at least said, hey, this is wrong. But as far as we can tell, he says nothing. He does nothing. Going on in verse 13, he says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Let's stop right there real quick. He didn't carry the land with him. So what did he do? He took this family property. The estate would be divided among children. But it was very important as you were to keep the property within the family as generation to generation went on. Remember the year of Jubilee. All property would be restored to families, okay, to the original, the original owners. So when you bought the land, you were actually buying it for the number of years left between now and the next year of Jubilee. That's how, how it was set up in the Old Testament. And he takes all this property and he says, I don't care about it. I'm going to get rid of it. It doesn't tell us who he sold it to, but he liquidated all of it and turned it all into cash. And he leaves, and he goes into a far country and squanders his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods and that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Nick, I apologize. You're a little early. It's fine, but you're a little early. (laughs) You can sit there if you like as long as you don't heckle. Um, (laughs) That was my fault. Um, So here he is. Now the Pharisee is like, I kind of like this story. This is all right. Now the younger son's getting what he deserves. This is what should have happened to him. He's got nothing. He's lost everything. He's destitute. He's had to hire himself out to a Gentile, and he's feeding pigs which were unclean animals and would have been detestable to a Jew. And this is where he is. And as he wallows in this misery, he begins to think. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It says he came to himself. It's amazing what hunger and being destitute will do to help you clear your thinking. Right? Everyone ever experienced being in dire need or in desperation? What happens? All the other noise kind of falls away, right? It's real easy to pray when you're scared, when you're desperate. If you look back at these parables, look at the woman with the issue of blood. She'd, looked, she'd gone to doctors for many years. She had nothing left. She was desperate. Jairus, who came about his daughter who was near death, he was a synagogue ruler. He probably faced some negative peer pressure for coming to Jesus, but he did it anyway because he was desperate. And now the younger son also is desperate. He doesn't know what to do, and he begins to think. And his appetites now, all the things that he wants, all of his pride, all of that is gone. And he has nothing, and now he's thinking. He realizes that his father's hired servants. These are not lowest forms of servants or slaves. These are basically like employees. But these hired servants have more than he has. They would have received a wage and also food and shelter. He realizes now that he's severely damaged his relationship with his father. He knows he can't go back and be a son. But he formulates a plan, and maybe he can, if he can convince him to hire him back as, a, as just a servant, 
maybe he can begin to save some money and eventually be out on his own again and, and restore his life to, to some semblance of normalcy. Notice here, he doesn't even consider making this proposal to anybody else. He doesn't say first, let me try my uncle. Let me try this friend in the neighboring town. He's an outcast. What he did would have been horrific. There was no way back. He, but there's an inkling, there's a clue, right, that he knows something about his father's love. Because he thinks there's a chance that his father might forgive him and take him back as a servant. He can't conceive of being a son. He knows he can't have that. But maybe his father loves him enough and will, will forgive him. He's already seen his father's mercy once, at least, and I think probably obviously more than once, when he left. And now he, he says, I think I have a plan. But even now, he doesn't fully understand what he's lost. He still thinks the issue is that he's hungry, and he's destitute, and he has nothing, and he's lost an inheritance. What he doesn't yet get is that the really big loss was the, rest, the relationship with his father that was broken. He thinks it's everything else, but he doesn't quite get that yet. And it says that, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He was a long way off. The father was watching for him. We don't know how long it was from the way they describe things. It's a long time, maybe years. And yet you can picture the father. I don't know if he just sat looking down the road every day or once in a while would look up and just look down the road. But he looks down the road this time and he sees his son a long way off. And then what he does next is even more shocking to an eastern ear. In the, in the east, this parable is not known many times as the parable of the prodigal son. It's known as the parable of the running father. Because what is so shocking to them, more shocking to them, is that the father would run to the son. Running was undignified. You didn't do it if you were an older man. Because in order to run, you would have to pull up your robes and expose your legs. Otherwise, you would trip. And it was shameful to do it. Not only does he run, which is shameful. It's why the Pharisees wouldn't walk through an unplowed field. It was one of their laws because they would have to lift up their robes. Not only was he shaming himself and humiliating himself by running, but he's running to this guy. The guy who told him, I wish you were dead. Who spit in his face. Who took everything that was his and then turned it into cash and left and went far away. Not even like to the next town. This was, I'm out of here. And he went to a faraway country. And he's running to him. Then the father embraced him and kissed him. The word embraced here actually means seized or to fall upon. And the word kiss means to kiss again and again. So to illustrate this, I have a little story for you. When I was 16, I think of this story every time I read this passage. When I was 16 in the church I grew up in, I was asked to be one of the ushers, to help out ushering. And our church had two main sections like this. We had a middle aisle and then two aisles. And then there was an overflow section off to one side that a couple other ushers would carry. But there'd be four of us ushers, and you would come down. And so it was kind of, you know, it was the first thing I did that was out. I'd be standing up in front of people, and I was, you know, I'd done other little things here and there. But this was kind of a big deal. You know, you can't trip and fall, you know, or anything to go bad. And so, came, you know, for you ushers, you know, the guys that do it and help out, don't worry. Everyone really isn't staring at you. Yeah, we are, but don't worry about it. Don't be nervous. Nothing could go wrong. So I come down to do it. And the other thing was the pastor would always ask one of the ushers to pray for the offering. And he could ask any of the four of you right in front of him. But if you were right there, you had a pretty good chance. It was a little nerve-wracking. And I don't know if this was the first week we did it or sometime. I don't remember that. But after, at some point, I'm ushering and I'm right here on this side of this aisle. And I'm going back and everything's going fine. We go along the first row. You pass the thing and it comes back on the second and it goes out in the third. 
And sitting in the fourth row, just innocent little, was Sister Carmela Mangino. Okay, now in the church I grew up in, a lot of churches, the, kind of the, the tradition was you didn't say Mr. and Mrs., you said brother and sister. Sister Carmela Mangino was about a five-ish foot tall Italian immigrant who spoke either English with an Italian accent or Italian with an English accent. I never was exactly sure which. And was just a nice lady who I knew. She knew, you know, she knew our family, and, and I, I knew who she was. But I hadn't had a lot of interaction with her, mostly because I never knew what she was saying. And, but I knew her. And as I got to the fourth row, I looked down, and there she was. And she's beaming, looking up at me. And I, well, that's kind of nice. So I kind of smiled back at her. And I had no idea what was coming next. Because five-foot-tall Sister Carmela Mangino shot her arm out and grabbed the back of my head. Ow. <laughs> grabbed the back of my, it was like that. Grabbed the back of my head and neck. And her arm, she was five feet tall. Her arm was 12 feet long. I'm sure of it. And she had, that arm had the strength of 10 men. And I'm pretty sure it wrapped around me three times before it actually grabbed me by the back of the neck. And she pulled me down. We're in the fourth row, right in front of the whole church. And she pulled me down and wrapped the other arm around me and started kissing me. My father thought it was hysterical. Right? I didn't have exactly the same opinion. I was sure my face was on fire. And I was worried about setting my clothes on fire. And I, I got to the back and I said to her head usher, guy, really nice guy, the name of Pete Downick, I said, Pete, I will never usher again if you put me in the middle. <laughs> I wasn't going to go through that again. And every time I read that, that's what it means. It means to fervently kiss. He didn't give him a peck. It wasn't a traditional kiss, 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 like you see in the middle. He falls on his neck. This is a kiss among equals. He doesn't fall at his, the sun doesn't fall at his feet. The son doesn't take his hand and kiss him, which is another sign of respect. But the father falls on the son and kisses him. This is a kiss among equals. And it says next, And the son said to him, the son begins his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Where's the part about being one of the hired servants? He doesn't say it. And we're not, there's a couple things that happen here. For one, I think the father cuts him off. Because the father's past that. He doesn't need it. But I think also the son realizes that the issue isn't the money he squandered. It's not how he's going to support himself. Now he sees because when the father saw him a long way off and began running, the son sees him too. He's just as shocked that his father is running. And what's more, when his father gets to him, he's not carrying a stick to beat him with, which is what he deserved. But he falls on him and kisses him. The son now instantly knows this isn't about being a hired servant. He already knows he's been restored. And he's stunned by this. And he never brings it up. And I don't think it would have gone anywhere anyway because the father was like, he doesn't want to hear the part about not being worthy to be called a son. He's on to the next thing. And he's, he's beginning to call the servants to him. The father restores him immediately. There's no conditions. No, if you do this, a little probationary period, there's nothing. But the restoration comes immediately without receiving anything from the son, which is really good because the son has nothing to give. And that's the way we come to the Lord. We have nothing to give. Not our service, not our obedience. We'll talk about that more in a minute. We have nothing, and he accepts us anyway.
And it's not a grudging forgiveness. What does he do? He punctuates it by initiating a celebration. He calls the servants. He goes, get the fattened calf. That was a big deal to call it to kill the fattened calf. That was saved for a special occasion. He calls, it, he calls everyone to come and celebrate. And then it says, and they began to celebrate. The son now realizes that what he lost was the relationship. And now he's overwhelmed by being restored. And he's also celebrating because he realizes that he's been found. And now comes kind of the sad part of the story. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And now it becomes clear that this is not a story about a man who lost his youngest son, who went off and wasted his inheritance. But it's a story about a man who had two lost sons. One was lost and very far away, and the other was lost and very near. The oldest older son now, who had not distinguished himself, remember, by defending his father earlier on, now he finds his anger. Now he's angry. Now he knows something's wrong and it shouldn't be this way. And even though the father has called for everyone to come, the older son now defies that and refuses to go in. Doesn't say much for his relationship with the father, does it? It says next that his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead. He doesn't accept the your son part. He goes, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The son rebukes the father for this great injustice. He's now perpetuated on him. He's perpetrated on him. But just like the younger son, he doesn't understand the supremacy and priority of relationship. He focuses on what he's done. I served you. And what he hasn't done, I never disobeyed you. And he misses the fact that that's not what the Father's love is about. He doesn't get it. It's not that I serve and obey in order to have a relationship. I serve and obey because I have the relationship. We serve the Lord. We're active in service and ministry, not because that earns us a place in the kingdom. I don't care if you've been in ministry for 20, 30, 40 years. Whatever you've given up, if you're doing it to earn salvation, if that's the transaction, you're wrong. You do it out of love because of what he's done for you, because none of it would ever work, would ever be useful. And now the father shows the same mercy and forgiveness to him that he showed a few minutes earlier to the younger son. He went to him. He left the celebration. He left the party. And just like he'd run out to the younger son, he goes out to the older son. He initiates the reconciliation. He had every right to have this son punished as well and not to go out. But he goes out and he initiates the reconciliation. And then it says he entreated him. Literally, he begged him to understand. He begged him to do what was in his own interest. And then Jesus does something even more astonishing. He doesn't finish the story. See, the Pharisees know that this last part was directed to them. They're very clear about that. They understand what he's saying. And Jesus leaves it there because it's not only a story that he's telling, it's a question that he's asking. Will you accept my forgiveness as something you can't earn? 
They didn't understand it. See, they saw the son who disobeyed and the son who obeyed and said, that's polar opposite. What they didn't have was the right context that shows that God's righteousness is over there somewhere. And that compared to his right, in that context, these two things aren't that far apart. God's holiness, the standard, is so far above anything we can do or anything we provide. And that's what grace does. The expectation, the standard, is perfection. We can't meet that. God knows we'll fail. And so what does he do? He himself comes down. He himself reaches out. And he makes the bridge. He bridges the gulf. And he provides the reconciliation that can bridge the gap between where we are and where the standard is. And we're holy in him. And then all of those things, the the older son, his service was important. His obedience, those were praiseworthy things. They're good things, but they're not enough. As the rest of the worship team comes, we're going to sing one more song, and then we'll close in prayer. Daniel understood this too. When Daniel was praying for the Jewish nation, he says, We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, or in accordance with our righteousness, but because of your mercy. In other words, there's nothing we've done No matter how righteous we are, we cannot earn the restoration that the Israelites needed, the Israelite nation at that time. But we bring these pleas to you, God, because of your mercy. And according to your mercy, we know that we'll have forgiveness. There's an old hymn. I just want to read to you one of the verses. It said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. And there my burdened soul found liberty, freedom at Calvary. Amen. Let's just worship as we sing this song and then we'll close in prayer.